This is a Bergen Film Club podcast. Like an old movie removed from the frame, I am floating and looking for someone to blame. Won't you project me on the walls of your heart? I'm waiting. The real thing to start. Hello, and welcome to the real thing. I'm your host, Joe Lawrence, and here we are on episode five. How exciting! We've made it all this way to five. Five is a good number. I'm excited to make it to 10, 15, 20. 25? I think it's going good. I'm having a great time. This podcast is an extension of Bergen Film Club, which is an independent cinema in the heart of Bergen, Norway. The goal of the of the film club is to show films in order to give a voice to those who need it and give insights into cultures that are unknown, but also show very, very good movies. In this podcast, I talk about the films that are included in the film club's past, present, and future catalogue of movies. And today, we are going into the past, actually. So far, we have done upcoming or just past films in the film club. But today, we're we're taking it back all the way to 1993, which is where it all started to talk about Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Which I'm very excited about. I love that movie so much. And I'm very excited to be doing a musical. I didn't think that we would be doing musicals so soon on the podcast. But I'm I'm very glad that we have reached this destination so soon. Once again, it is just me. Just me on the podcast. No guests this time. But I think it worked out pretty well last time. So I think uh, it's going to be good. This episode might be a little shorter than usual as well. But don't worry. going to keep this amazing momentum going the amazing coverage of the films going so don't worry about that we still have a great episode we're going to be bringing in that halloween christmasy feeling uh nine months early because why not you know this is a very uh, special episode of the podcast actually not only is it our fifth episode but this is the first on location episode of the podcast i'm supposed to be traveling back to england i was supposed to be there today to see my family but god had different plans for me as he often does god said no today you are staying in the skondek hotel right next to bergen airport and that's fine we had a very lovely hotel room um i just had a really bad meal and i'm ready to do some podcasting when i say that it has been a long day i really mean that it has been a long long day but you know got to take it as it comes roll with the punches otherwise life will break you and that is my that's my message for today that life will break you if you don't let it wash over you and that's the energy that i'm taking into this episode of the podcast so i hope that you're all here for it apart from that it's been a it's been a freezy cold week in bergen upwards of minus 10 who could believe it but it's been very sunny and that's been it's been nice to see some sun I think it was also sunny last week, and it's nice to keep up that vitamin D hit. 
uh, as this podcast will kill you told me. Here I am repeating myself really, but I'm thinking about vitamin D a lot now. And I think you should too. Go outside, look at the sky, get that circadian rhythm fixed. And let's start the episode. Let's get into it with some recommendations. So in terms of podcast recommendations, I'm recommending the last podcast on the left from the last podcast network. This podcast covers all of the horrors our world has to offer, both imagined and real, from demons and slashes to cults and serial killers. It's guaranteed to satisfy your bloodlust. I have started listening to this podcast and it is wildly liked. It is one of the most popular and successful podcast that is out there. I believe that it started all the way back in 2015. And it's just three it's three guys just being dudes talking about yeah, like what I just said, serial killers, Satan, horror, everything that I really love in a in a perfect little 45-minute episode. It's it's really good. I would say uh, maybe there needs to be a bit of a trigger warning for some of the earlier episodes. I would say that those three men are not particularly as PC or as uh, updated as we are in in 2023 but it's still good and it's very funny and they talk about some interesting stuff I've been learning about uh, drug cartels in Mexico and but you're not allowed to talk about it Uh, I learned about the origins of Satan or the image of Satan Hieronymus Bosch it's been great so I'm really enjoying the podcast at the moment and uh, for those of you like me who just listen to podcasts endlessly like i said the catalog starts in 2015 so there is a lot of episodes to get through so it's got a huge catalog and i'm excited to keep going with it and yeah it's very good so for tv recommendation i'm ba- i'm back on netflix i am i'm back on my tv train uh i started watching this a little while ago and i just recently started watching it again but it's uh, guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities which is on netflix it's uh, eight episodes, uh, and each episode is a different thing, and it's just like a very cool Guillermo del toro e story uh, with, a, with a really great cast, uh, each episode. It's really good, uh, obviously. It's, um, it's produced by him, and he has a, sort of like a spotlight on each director, and it's fun. It's like kind of uh, the Twilight Zone kind of vibe, uh, but it has some really great episodes. So far, I've watched... An episode of like an alien uh, inhabiting a a cadaver and and trying to take over the human race. Uh, but I think my favorite episode so far has been episode four, uh, which is called The Outside, which is about this uh, character called Stacy who begins to use this like lotion that she has like a terrible allergic reaction to and kind of like to the dismay of her husband who thinks that she's perfect just as she is. She's convinced that this lotion is going to make her have this huge transformation and become beautiful just like her work colleagues and it's really messed up and it's twisted and it's really great really amazing practical effects it's just very cool so yeah i'm going with that it's uh guillermo del toro's cabinet of curiosities on netflix and lastly for our film recommendation i just rewatched everything everywhere all at once with my friends uh christian and sophia my god that movie is so amazing i just i like i don't even know how to sell it it's a, it's one of the best movies there is for me it is so it's funny 
it's sad it's heartfelt it's emotional and you just can i think it's really easy to connect to it because it's such a human real story even though it's with this like multiverse hyperbole situation i just think you find yourself in any of those characters they're so deep and so heartfelt it's just i don't even know i don't know i don't know what to say about it that hasn't already been said before it has won literally every award that it has been nominated for and you know awards on everything but i think that it is a pretty good indication that this is an amazing movie because it genuinely is it also uses a lot of practical effects which we love on the podcast and yeah michelle's michelle yo's performance in this is just unparalleled i think it's so complex and amazing and all of the stunts that she does are just incredible ki hui kwan is fantastic playing the role of her husband he has such a depth to that performance which is just so it just makes me cry and cry and cry it's so amazing jamie the curtis is so good in it and stephanie Zhu. i just what more can i say about this film it is amazing go check it out this message is also directly to my mom and my sister who have not watched the film and continue not to watch it so yeah that's the film recommendation and also a little dig at my mom and my sister but yeah those are within the recommendations of this episode uh some pretty good good stuff i'm really really enjoying the last podcast on the left uh it's very it's just it's very entertaining just listen to these dudes chatting and yeah everything everywhere all at once i just i don't think i'm gonna get tired of watching that film it's incredible but now let's get to the matter at hand this episode we are talking all about the 1993 henry selleck directed film the nightmare before christmas So yeah, today we're talking about The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is also known as Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. It is a 1993 American stop-motion musical fantasy film produced and conceived by Tim Burton, but directed by Henry Selleck. Now this is a little bit of drama that we're going to get into a little bit later. See, I'm teasing for something that's that's coming. It's uh, It's some interesting drama for sure. Initially, it was released through Touchstone Pictures because Disney thought that the film was too dark and scary for kids. Uh, but feature films released under Touchstone, uh, under the Touchstone label were produced and financed by Disney still and featured more mature themes targeted towards adult audiences. Uh, so stuff that is atypical of what Walt Disney Pictures tries to be. And as such, Touchstone was merely a brand of Disney and did not exist as a real distinct business operation. Touchstone operated as an active film production division of Disney during the 1980s and through the early 2010s, releasing the majority of the studio's PG-13 and R-rated films, but eventually was made defunct in 2017, so it was basically a way of Disney to protect their sweet, innocent Mickey Mouse brand. It was met with critical success, praised for its animation, characters, songs, and the score, it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Visual Effects, which is pretty exciting for an animated film. So it was the first animated film, in fact, to be nominated 
for uh, for this uh, for this category, but it lost to Jurassic Park, which we talked about on the second episode of the podcast, which was the work done by Phil Tippett, who made Mad God. It was a modest box office hit at first, uh, but since then it's got an enormous uh, cult following, me included. 50 million US dollars in the US on its initial theatrical run, but later it made way more when now the the value sits something at like 91 and a half million US dollars, whereas the budget was 24 million, I think. So it made bank. It's regarded as a moderate sleeper hit. And our research has included a quite fun definition of what a sleeper hit is. It's generally considered to be a film, series, music, video game, or some other entertainment product that was initially unsuccessful on release, but became successful later on. A sleeper hit may have had little promotion or a lack of successful launch, but gradually develops a fan following that uh, that garners uh, media attention, which in turn increases its public exposure and public interest in the product, which is what happened with this film, that... It wasn't so big when it came out, but since then, I believe that it's had re-releases and uh, uh, several kind of like DVD, Blu-ray, etc. releases as well. So it's definitely maintained and propelled its way through um, through the zeitgeist, I guess. The plot tells the story of Jack Skellington, who is the king of Halloween Town. He stumbles onto... Christmas Town and schemes to take over the holiday. Halloween Town is a fantasy world populated by various monsters and beings associated with the Halloween holiday. Jack Skellington, highly respected by the other citizens, he is regarded as the Pumpkin King and is the one who leads the annual organization and planning of the festivities. However, this year Jack has grown tired of the same old repetitive celebrations each year and he craves change. And one day, whilst wandering in the woods, he stumbles upon seven trees that contain the doors to each holo- um, to each holiday. Halloween, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, and Independence Day. So it's obviously very, uh, it's a very American viewpoint. And on this new discovery of Christmas, he's delighted and fascinated and he's ecstatic to share his findings. And he's determined to make... Christmas, Halloween Town's new venture. It's a new way to bring him joy. And it kind of just goes from there. It's uh, it's just so good. It's fantastic. And we'll talk about it in, uh, in a sec. But the music in this film is incredible. It's made by Danny Elfman, who's just like a paragon of, uh, of score-making people, whatever that word is. And it's just great. Uh, many great characters, a great voice cast. We have uh, Chris Sarandon as Jack, and with Danny Elfman providing the singing voice for Jack Skellington, and Sally, who's sort of Jack's friend and love interest in the film, is voiced by Catherine O'Hara from from Beetlejuice, from Home Alone, Schitt's Creek. She she provides such a good performance in this film. So this film had a very interesting production story. Tim Burton wrote a three-page poem, The Nightmare Before Christmas, in 1982, and basically this was the origin of the film. He wanted to make it into a short film or a half-hour TV special. However, it wasn't until years later, in 1990, that he made a development deal with Disney Studios that the movie would really start becoming a reality, and then production started in 1991. 
So one of the few friendships that Burton had made at Disney was with Henry Selleck, who had carved out a niche for himself after leaving Disney with his stop-motion animation for MTV and some other short films. So this is how Henry Selleck became involved. Henry is an American film director, producer, screenwriter, production designer and animator who is best known for directing stop-motion animation films. And this film was his directorial debut, which is an incredible film to begin with. Other films that, uh, in his uh, in his filmography would be James and the Giant Peach, which is another fantastic film, uh, another fantastic stop motion film. Uh, it has Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders and, and a great cast. And yeah, that's so fantastic. Uh, Coraline. He also directed Coraline, which is an incredible film. So just like genre defining in terms of the stop motion films and more recently in 2022 he worked on Wendell and Wilde with Netflix. So I have known about Henry Selleck because Coraline is one of my favorite movies and James and the Giant Peach is a film that absolutely terrified me as a child but I still loved it and he from what uh, our researchers Mamina and Ingrid provided I think I like this guy even more he seems like a really cool guy when he was talking about working with stop motion he said quote there's something about real objects being hand manipulated and brought to life that is always going to bring me back. It's the oldest type of animation and I think it has the strongest magic. End quote. That magic, he explains, is linked directly to the craft of stop motion and how it manifests on screen. Quote, if you make stop motion so perfect that it looks like computer animation, what's the point? Just make computer animation. End quote. So he's just so, like, fantastic and I think he is a great director and definitely kind of to stick with stop motion for so long and really like fight in its corner is such an admirable thing because I really think it's such an amazing uh, art form. Selleck achieved a huge credit for working with Coraline and now with his new Wendell and Wilde movie that's on Netflix. Both films feature Selleck in the director's chair and were marketed as such. So he says that Coraline is is based on a really good book by Neil Gaiman, so that was a good way to sort of promote that. And on Wendell and Wilde, his collaborator was Jordan Peele, so that was one of the reasons why that film was able to be so successful. But he said that truly he really likes to collaborate, which is one of the things that he always likes to be leading the team, but being collaborative and acknowledging other people's work is what he strives to be as, as a leader, which... I think is great. He sounds like such a cool guy. But as we know, stop motion is a time-consuming process that requires animators to move characters or puppets one frame at a time. And this is very intense work. It takes several days to do what might take a couple seconds on film. 14 of the top stop motion animators in the world work simultaneously on all of the sets, manage to complete about 70 seconds of film a week, which is crazy. They said that the Jack Skellington puppet had 400 different heads that are replaced each time he changes expression. But the kind of hidden villain of this film, uh, who is called Oogie Boogie, uh, the, his innards, he is made up of bugs, but they animated each individual bug, which it was like 3,000 different mechanical bug puppets, which is insane, but it's like, it's what the director says, that it is a really incredible art form and 
there's no point trying to make it look like real life. A stop motion looks a certain way and feels a certain way, but it has a certain magic in there. And they're working towards that is it's just fantastic really i love this film it it captures the creepy movements of all the characters so perfectly and and really the way that each kind of halloween puppet is animated makes you have this sort of like creepy feeling i suppose which is then contrasted with those who live in the christmas world who are kind of these like much larger more slower moving puppets so it's just it's just such a great storytelling device as well as a way to make films. I, stop motion is great. So as I mentioned, this is a musical and it has some absolutely fantastic musical numbers. This is Halloween is a great tune. Sally's song, what's this? What's this? It's also amazing. And it's all thanks to the legendary Danny Elfman who scores and writes the songs for this movie. And like I said, he's also providing the singing voice for the main character, Jack. And Elfman voiced all the parts as he wrote the music. And in the process, became so fond of Jack Skellington that he remains his singing voice, basically. So it was more that Danny Elfman just decided that he was going to do this. Elfman has made music for many of Tim Burton's films. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Batman Returns. When talking about the first song, he said, quote, The truth is we blindly started making the film with What's This? That means that the songs were cornerstones to build the film around, and then the screenwriter Caroline Thompson was brought in to fill the pieces of story between the songs. Uh, end quote. And Selick says one good thing is that when you're given a song to animate and bring to life, there's a lot of storytelling already worked out. There was already a story task to accomplish. So getting a song was like being given a running time and a rhythm, and it gave a solid framework to build the sequence to, and that it he ended up really enjoying that. And that sometimes it was harder to storyboard and sketch a scene with a non-musical apart, so in effect, with the songs, there was the limitations in terms of timing and which characters you would go to, which I think is such a fun way to sort of frame the making of a film. We talked about this when we talked about Your Name uh, in the first episode of the podcast, in which that the storyboarding and the score were made at the same time so they were sort of influencing each other the way that the characters were moving could be influenced by the music and also then in the way that certain scenes played out this score could be directly influenced and that creates like this wonderful tightness between score songs and performance which which gives the film such a magic cohesiveness which just adds to the wonder and the absolute dreaminess of this film. Danny Elfman has frequently worked with a lot of the same directors, so Tim Burton, Sam Raimi, and Gus Van Sant. He has four Oscar nominations, two Emmys, and a Grammy. In 2013, Danny Elfman returned to the stage for the first time since his own band, Oingo Boingo, had disbanded to sing a handful of the Nightmare Before Christmas songs as part of the concert Danny Elfman's music from the films of Tim Burton featuring suites of music from the 15 Tim Burton films arranged by Elfman. But the concert since then has toured internationally, and has, since 2015, Elfman has appeared regularly at the Hollywood Bowl Halloween concert featuring full orchestra performance of the Night Before Christmas score live to the film production, which is awesome. 
In 2021, he had Billie Eilish come and voice Sally and sing her parts. And in 2022, last year, we had Phoebe Bridges, which uh, which had the lesbians gagged. And me too. It was great. So as I mentioned, there was some drama with this film, which I wasn't really aware of until our researchers, Mamina and Ingrid, brought it to my attention. So Tim Burton is a director that really needs no introduction, but here goes anyway. He made his directorial debut with a five-minute Disney puppet animated film, Vincent, about a seven-year-old boy who dreams of being Vincent Price. And since then, he's gone on to make just countless amazing films. He made one of, I think, my favorite film of all time, which is Big Fish. I love that film so much, and it's so like it has this like very twisted Tim Burton element but it's also incredible story heartfelt storytelling which is really something that you find in a lot of his films that there is the sort of like creepy element but at the at the heart of it it is very human so that like Big Fish like Beetlejuice like Edward Scissorhands which I think is such a tragic beautiful film I love it but like I said there was some drama And it was essentially down to maybe Tim Burton getting a little bit too much credit for this film. So this film wasn't always called Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. Henry Selleck, in fact, said that it wasn't called this until three weeks before the film came out. He said that he would have been fine with this if it is what he had signed up for. Selleck directed the movie along with Caroline Thompson, who did the script that was based on Burton's character and story and this poem that he wrote. But essentially Walt Disney Studios, through their label Touchstone Pictures, wanted to take advantage of Burton's star power. He was just coming off two wildly successful Batman movies as well as Edward Scissorhands, and his name surely would have helped the initial marketing push. But as Selleck pointed out, when it came to actually making the film, Burton wasn't even on set. Quote, Tim was in LA, making two feature films while I was directing the film. And I mean, Tim is a genius. Or he certainly was in most of his creative years. Funny. I also thought this story was perfect, and he designed the main characters, but it was really me and my team of people who brought this to life. End quote. And according to Selleck, there's yet another collaborator who tends to take full credit. Quote. Now, of course, if you ask Danny Elfman, well, that's his movie. The Night Before Christmas is Danny Elfman's movie. When we finished the film, it was so funny because he came up to me and shook my hand and said, Henry, you've done a wonderful job illustrating my songs. And he was serious and I loved it. So it seems that Disney sort of slapped Tim Burton's name on this film when maybe he wasn't as involved as, uh, as as you would think. And even 25 years after it was first released, people consider it to be an official part of Burton's impressive filmography as a director, with Selleck's significant work often forgotten. Selleck says, quote, I don't want to take it away from Tim, but he was not even in San Francisco when we made it. He came up maybe five times over two years and spent no more than eight to ten days in total. We did communicate while he was filming in Los Angeles and he offered suggestions It's more like he wrote a children's book and gave it to us and we went from there. But the bottom line was that Tim Burton's name before the title was going to bring in more people than it would mine, end quote. 
which I think is a shame, really, because Henry Selleck is an incredible director, he's an incredible artist, and that Disney is so concerned with pushing their own envelope uh, from a financial point of view, which, I mean, ultimately makes sense. What does a company want to do? It want to make money. So, but it's a shame. But some of this could be due to Burton's contract. Disney offered Burton a contractual promise of creative autonomy, but insisted that the film be titled Tim Burton's The Nightmare for Christmas to capitalize on his name recommendation, as well as distance it from a standard Disney film, since it was released through this, uh, this touchstone pictures. While a small handful of other filmmakers, including Fellini and Ken Russell, had their names tied to the film, Burton was the first and only filmmaker to have his name incorporated into the title of a film that he did not make himself. He did not write the script, he did not direct the film, although, like I said, he was involved in the conception. So, credit where credit's due, this film wouldn't exist without Tim Burton's mind, but ultimately it was Henry Selleck and Caroline Thompson who drove this film to be what it was, and Annie Elfman for for writing the music. And I think that, you know, in 2023, where they're like, what, 30 years later now, it's time to give Henry Selleck some... uh, some recognition because he's an incredible worker as well with Caroline Thompson. Not that Danny Elfman needs any more recognition, but I think that's a shame. And I, I suppose it's a larger is- issue with Hollywood in general that creative licensing is often forgone in place of financial success, and especially with Disney. But this episode I've already mentioned. Mexican drug cartels and I've been very mean about Disney so I think that I'm on a high hit list so I think it's uh, time to pivot and look at some some more descriptions of the film from Selleck himself. Selleck quite nicely put or when he was reflecting on the direction of the film it's as though Burton laid an egg and I sat on it and hatched it. He wasn't involved in a hands-on way but his hands are in it. That it was uh, Henry's job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not really so different from his own films. When Tim Burton was uh, talking about the film, he mentioned that he had been a lonely child growing up, which makes sense, and that, holi- that holidays were a time of escape and wonder for him. That any time it was Christmas or Halloween, that he'd go to thrifties and buy stuff, and it was great. It gives you some sort of texture all of a sudden that wasn't there before. He finds that the mix of Halloween and Christmas is beautiful and that he just liked the idea of this sort of reverse Grinch character. Jack is not a bad character, he says, referring to the influence of Dr. Seuss as the Grinch who's all Christmas, that he likes the kind of character that's passionate but doesn't really know what he's doing or what he's doing wrong, that he thinks that it's the reaction against this kind of society that you grow up in, where people don't feel a lot or go out on a limb a lot. And just kind of remain in the shadow and judge other people. What's nice about these characters is that they just get swept along in something even if they don't know what they're doing. Basically following a story of characters that have the best intentions but are ultimately seriously misguided. In the same vein, when uh, the film was sort of critiqued being too scary for young children, Burton said that he had a real issue about that. That maybe he was different growing up, maybe he was different from the other kids, but he doesn't think. He said that he was uh, different from other kids in the sense that he was never scared of monster movies. That people forget that kids are intelligent. The other thing is that The Nightmare Before Christmas isn't really scary, and thematically, this story is about perception. 
these characters are not bad at heart. They just have a certain way and things shouldn't be judged by the way that they look. And that's something that he has resisted his entire life. He's always pushing the envelope, so to speak, in terms of things that seems like you could judge. But when you really get to know the heart of someone, you can look past their kind of scary exterior, which I suppose he plays into by the way that he dresses. But I think is really highlighted in his film Edward Scissorhands. This very like gaunt, kind of ostensibly scary character with these huge knives for hands, but really has a heart of gold. So yeah, I guess uh, I guess that's all that I really have to say about that film. It is probably one of my favorite films, one of my favorite musicals. It's so it's so fantastic, and I doubt that anyone listening hasn't seen it. But why just watch it once a year? Go watch it right now. On DisneyPlus.com, <laughs> it is a it's just a fantastic, magical, wonderful film. I've been watching it since I was really young. I would shout out to my mom for for letting me watch it when I was a, was when I was a kid because it's sad to hear that people would have been limited from watching it on the pretense that it's a scary film. But really, it's a wonderful film where you get to learn about all these like fantastic characters and learn about their viewpoints. And it's just great, and the music is amazing. It really, really uh, drove my love for musicals, I think, along with all the other musicals that I was watching as a child. But it's just fantastic. And additionally, go shout out Henry Selick, if you're listening, huge fan. (laughs) Um, he, He deserves the credit for this film because he really did such a magical job. He really took what was a really incredible concept and made something amazing so yeah and caroline thompson shout out as well for making an incredible script um and yeah let's uh, end the podcast with some letterboxd re- five star letterboxd reviews and we also have some low star reviews too so to begin we have level agento if i had watched this film at a young age i would have been scarred for life and probably would have needed therapy but after I watched this now for the first time, I can say that the aesthetics are purely wonderful. The design of the characters is so creatively done. I would say that you could have watched it as a child and you wouldn't have been scarred for life. It's incredible. As Fix, five-star review, emotional support movie, plus I get to sim for a dead, skinny, long boy. If I'm simping for anyone in that film, it's Sally. From Jolie Weinberg, I think I've consumed this movie more than I have other vegetables. And from Meg, no, but you don't understand that this is Halloween, this is Halloween, pumpkin scream in the dead of night. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, everybody make a scream, trick or treat to the neighbors die of fright. And for the half star reviews, which I was surprised to see they exist. After watching this movie, I wish I could take off and then sew back the various parts of my body like Sally does. So I was from 365 Letters. And from Emil Watches Scars, this movie is ass and I hate how whiny they all are. I think you're ass and I hate how whiny you are. But that has been another episode of The Real Thing. Uh, Next week we are talking about a pretty interesting, kind of controversial film. So I'm I'm just going to tease that. I'm excited to talk about it. It's uh, UK related because I'm going to be in the UK. But thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. But this has been The Real Thing. 
Thank you very much for listening. Catch you next time. This has been a Bergen Film Club production. Our music is by Wise John. Check them out on Instagram at WISE John Official. Our logo is by Pia Sophia Brentesen. This episode was produced, mixed, and engineered by Joel Lawrence. Our researchers are Inke Schilfgeibern and Mamina Nazmajit. Want to talk to us about films? Then please send us an email at podcast at bergenfilmclub.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at TheRealThingPod. Check us out on Letterboxd at BFK The Real Thing. Thank you and goodbye. Listen, follow, leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts.